0: Welcome everyone. Uh, For those who don't know me, my name is Matt Rajansky. I'm director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. I want to thank you again for joining us for today's event, Ukraine's Economic Development, a 30-Year History. Before we start, I want to remind you, you can stay up to date with uh, upcoming events and publications on our website, as well as by following our podcasts, Kennan X and the Russia File, as well as our Russia File blog and our Focus Ukraine blog. We're very pleased today to have uh, several wonderful experts on Ukrainian and Eurasian economics and energy issues. Um, Each of the speakers that you'll hear from was involved as a contributor uh, to a forthcoming publication, which I can hold up for you if the camera will let me. There we go. Yeah, Okay. You can see it. Uh, It is entitled, From the Ukraine to Ukraine, a Contemporary History. Um, the book explores the multidimensional transformation of independent Ukraine over the past three decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union. It looks at Ukraine's politics, society, private sector, identity, arts, religions, media, and democracy, uh, and we'll currently uh, plan on doing a book launch for that in May. You can pre-order it through the Ibidem uh, website. Uh, definitely encourage you to take a look at the volume. Our hope is that it is a valuable teaching tool, that it's a backgrounder for Uh, journalists, uh, policymakers, diplomats, anybody who is dealing with modern Ukraine from the outside. And it is one of the the rare contemporary histories of Ukraine in the English language. We think it it stands up very well. Um, Today, we're going to take just a small slice of the book, um, talking about a few of the essential ideas, uh, including Ukraine's uh, challenge of essentially developing a private sector from nothing uh, in the course of a few years following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Challenges related to privatization, which of course are still ongoing today, Uh, and the difficult history of the energy sector in Ukraine, which, as we know, has been a font of corruption and dysfunction, uh, but also potentially promises to be a big part of Ukraine's transformation in the future. Um, And finally, uh, the lessons from both the chapters on uh, the energy sector uh, and Ukraine's private sector more generally. Uh, that show us that it is not only the state, but in fact, the nation, uh, the building of which leads to the country's success. Um, And I'm very pleased to have not only the authors of those chapters, but my co-editor of the volume, uh, Misha Minakov, uh, with us to lead a discussion, um, and we have plenty of time to do that. You're welcome to seed questions at any time, including right now, uh, by emailing them to Kenan k-e-n-n-a-n at wilsoncenter.org, tweeting them at Kennan Institute or posting on our Facebook page. Um, If you include your name and affiliation, that would help me very much uh, when I identify you as the questioner. Now, let me start by introducing our first speaker and I'll just introduce each one in turn before they speak. Um, Andrian Prokip is a senior associate on Ukraine with the Kennan Institute. He's a former Fulbright Kennan Institute research scholar, and is currently serving as an energy expert for the Ukrainian Institute for the Future in Kyiv. He is the author of four books and many articles and reports on the geopolitics of energy in Europe, the transition to sustainable energy security, and the spatial usage of renewable energy sources. In 2013, he won the Ukrainian Energy Security uh, Strategy Project uh, and is also a member of the Younger Generation Task Force on Euro-Atlantic Security. He has more than a decade's experience teaching and conducting research in both Ukraine and the United States and Andrian, without any further delay, the floor is yours. You're muted, Andrian. Thank you, Matt,
1: for this kind of introduction. Thank you everyone for joining this event. <clears throat> Actually, there was a very difficult task for me and Margarita to cover development of Ukrainian energy during this independence period. Uh, in one chapter, however, I hope we were successful. And I will try you to, to tell you this story very briefly uh, in seven or 10 minutes to kick off questions for QA. and this story of Ukrainian energy during independence period, there was a story of swinging between populism and paternalism on the one side and attempts to conduct reforms to make sector efficient uh, on the other side. It was a story of swinging between Russia and West, uh, story of swinging between oligarchs' interests, and uh, during recent uh, 30 years, Ukraine received many lessons in energy security and energy policy, but most of these lessons were based on mistakes that Ukraine did itself. And as I see, uh, key enemies of energy reforms in Ukraine, uh, those were populism, paternalism and oligarchic consensus. Ukrainian energy sector 30 years ago in 1991, and today, uh, these are completely different in terms of ownership and management, but uh, these are still very similar uh, in terms of energies we used and pattern of energy balance, uh, self-sufficiency, energy intensity, energy efficiency, and the role of oligarchs. Uh, 1991 was the year of peak energy demand and consumption in Ukraine ever. And uh, consequently, there was a peak of energy production. Uh, but uh, economic crisis that followed the dissolution of Soviet Union uh, was followed uh, with uh, decreased, uh, followed with falling demand for energy. Uh, however, production has fallen as well. And this didn't help Ukraine in energy self-sufficiency. So never, By now, Ukraine was energy self-sufficient. It was reliant on uh, energy supplies, which implicated in many cases, the political dependence and economic dependence. Uh, Just two examples, a coal story. Coal was the only one resource that Ukraine had enough, but when uh, military conflict at the bus started, which is uh, the the key coal region in Ukraine, uh, Ukraine was urged to import this resource. I think Margarita, uh, my colleague, will tell much more about coal. Another story was gas. Uh, between 1991 and 1995, uh, domestic gas production has fallen, fallen seriously, and since that moment it remained almost the same. Uh, by now, and still, Ukraine is importing natural gas. However, uh, Ukraine is uh, has one of the biggest gas reserves in, in Europe. Uh, and None of these state uh, programs, which were which stipulated boost of gas production, didn't help because of plenty of reasons. Uh, however, there were also a good examples and good stories. Uh, for instance, uh, in the area of energy independence, that was a story of uh, diversification of nuclear fuel supplies. Uh, by two thousand and fourteen, that was only Russia who supplied nuclear fuel to Ukraine, and uh, since that moment. Uh, U.S. Westinghouse House uh, became an important player. Uh, that was uh, a story of uh, gas independence, when uh, in two thousand fourteen Ukraine was relying also on European Union as a part of supply, and since late two thousand fifteen uh, Ukraine wasn't dependent on Russia as a single supplier. And sure, that is a story of Stockholm arbitration, when uh, Ukraine won arbitration uh, uh, claims from Hasbro. Uh, renewables, that is a story that on the one hand, could contribute to energy self-sufficiency. Uh, however, uh, not, it's, it, that is not so good. Uh, renewables started in Ukraine in 2009. At that moment, it was just a business for oligarchs, market was closed. In 2014, uh, parliament amended legislation and any party could join a renewable energy business, but uh, misregulation has brought the problem that today, uh, state doesn't have enough money to pay a feed-in tariff to renewable producers, which caused a serious uh, investment crisis, uh, financial crisis in energy, and um, what I can say, also image crisis. Uh, Pricing for final consumers is still unfinished business. When Ukraine became independent in 1991, uh, there was no understanding that since that moment, Another state, Russia, uh, was supplying energy resources and Ukraine had to pay for this. So it took uh, so many time to understand uh, that uh, consumers have to pay a real price. In 2010, when uh, Viktor Yanukovych took the cabinet, um, Ukraine joined the European energy community and hence it had to implement all European energy legislation. However, uh, and this also included establishing uh, real energy prices. However, Uh, Nothing was done, and uh, liberalization market uh, reform started only in 2014. So by that moment, paternalism was was dominant. And uh, what is the paradox that uh, people demanded from government to to, to provide low prices, but at the same time, people didn't trust the government when government tried to conduct some uh, reforms and changes in energy. in 2015, new gas market design was introduced and by now, so we have almost liberalized gas market with however with some over-regulations, but I hope that this will be lifted uh, this year. And in 2019, electricity market uh, reform was uh, put in force and the new market design, the same as the European Union was uh, introduced however again overregulated uh, and again uh, households uh, do not pay the price that cover real cost uh, of energy at final extent all these overregulations and uh, paternalistic behaviors they uh, brought us to serious financial problems in uh, energy sector last year was a, a, a really crisis for, for Ukrainian energy companies most of big energy companies were unprofitable uh, there was, there were serious problems with paying fitting tariffs to uh, renewable producers and again there was a serious uh, professional uh, professionals uh, problem uh, more than a year Ukraine doesn't have energy minister and I don't only acting ministers and uh, I don't even mention about the um, uh other positions in energy sector and the energy uh, intensity ukraine is among the global leaders of energy hungry economies and uh, sure uh, shadow economy impacts on this and the, the big share of energy hungry industries and GDP impact on this uh, but still um, enhancing energy efficiency is unfinished business and so many has to be done uh in the future so uh there are so many problems in 2020, uh, 30 years after Ukraine became independent. So uh, we managed to solve some problems that we had 30 years ago, but uh, new problems occurred as a result of misregulation. And these have to be solved in the nearest future to uh, support energy because energy sector is an important part of economy and political life as well. Thanks.
0: Thanks so much, Andrian. Uh, I'm going to go next to Dr. Margarita Balmaseda, who is a professor of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. She's also the Petro Yasik Distinguished Fellow in Ukrainian Studies at Harvard's Ukrainian Research Institute. Uh, she's a former Wilson Center Fellow, of course, and uh, is a specialist on the comp- on comparative energy politics in the post-Soviet states. Her research follows the complex web of interconnections that accompany the energy relationship between Russian oil and gas producers, post Soviet transit states like Ukraine, and European consumers. Uh, supported by, among others, three Fulbright grants and a Marie Curie fellowship from the European Union, she's conducted extensive field research throughout Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. Her books are Russian Energy Chains, the remaking of technopolitics from Siberia to Ukraine to the European Union. Uh, resulted from her work as a Woodrow Wilson Fellow and it is due out uh, in May uh, as part of the Wilson Center series at Columbia University. Her bachelor's is from Johns Hopkins University and her MA and PhD in politics are from Princeton. Margarita, please.
2: Thank you, Matt. Uh, It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, First of all, because the work we did together with Andrea in this very unique project uh, from the Ukraine to Ukraine was so enriching. The idea of putting together a Western scholar with a Ukrainian scholar um, led to so much learning, at least on my part, that I really appreciate uh, being able to share these um, insights also with the larger public today. And I'm also really pleased to be uh, connected to Canon and to see the work I did with the Wilson Center and Canon come to fruition. in in this book that is coming out uh, very soon. So when I was thinking about my remarks uh, for for today, I, as an organizational device, I used the the heading, what have I learned from coal? And in fact, um, it was through my stay at the Wilson Center, through my work on this book that I learned a little bit more about coal, a lot about coal. And what I want to do in the next five minutes is to give you a little bit of a sense of why looking at coal can help us understand not only Ukraine's energy situation, but also political development more generally. And certainly speaking about coal is not something we do very often. In fact, I didn't even deal with coal in in three of my books. Uh, And we don't talk about coal very often because it's really not sexy. It doesn't lend itself to the kind of big strategy discussions uh, we have or the idea of a Russian Gazprom bureaucrat closing the the gas pipe. Um, We often think it's out of the picture because we are moving to a clean, decarbonized world. But the reality is that coal is in places like Ukraine still very much part of the picture. It's very much part of the picture as part of the energy mix, but even most importantly, and this is what I learned through my Wilson Center and Kenan project. It's part of the picture because it's set into motion a number of tendencies, a number of impulses that are still very much with Ukraine today. So I just want to give you a sense um, of some of the things that looking at coal can teach us. And obviously, I cannot go in detail about this, but I think they're worth thinking about. The first thing that looking at coal teaches us is that not all energy sources are equal. It's very different when we talk about natural gas or oil or coal or nuclear energy, because for a variety of reasons, in my own understanding and in my own theorizing about the question because of the materiality and physical characteristics of these types of energy, they cannot be used in the same way. Um, In in, in the book that I'm about to publish, I I go in great detail about this. And I explain how the physical characteristics of natural gas, for example, as opposed to a liquid type of energy, like like crude oil, as opposed to coal, which is a bulk um, product, matter tremendously for the ways in which not only Russia could deploy them against Ukraine, but also matter in terms of the way actors within Ukraine may use them. So that's the first thing we learn about coal, and I will, through coal, and I will go in uh, more in detail about that in a moment. Um, Through looking at coal, I also understood how tremendously important the first two, three years of Ukraine's independence were, in terms of setting into motion a set of dynamics that would continue for 30 years. Um, We can talk about this early formative period, also when we talk about natural gas or or oil, but in the case of coal, it's especially significant um, for a number of reasons. First, in the case of coal, we see the most direct clash between, for example, the Ukrainian experience of reform of the coal sector and what neighbors were doing in Poland, in Russia, elsewhere. Whereas in Russia, pretty early in the 1990s, there was an attempt to close unprofitable mines, for example. In Ukraine, none of this happened, and to have a sector of the economy where you have half a million people working that is producing or related to 2% of your, of your GDP and not really engage in reform had a tremendous um, impact on the sector. Everybody in the early 1990s was looking at coal, The World Bank was looking at coal, was trying to give Ukraine ideas and incentives for reforming the sector. Ukrainian politicians were looking at the coal sector, but from a very different perspective. They were interested in the possibility of coal compensating for dependency on Russia in terms of oil or natural gas. But most importantly, they were thinking, how can we keep employment in the sector alive. So really a clash of visions on reform in the sector. And I think in the case of coal, we see that much more um, starkly than even in the case of natural gas or oil. The third reason why looking at coal can teach us a lot is because it teaches us that energy is not simply about energy as electricity that you may produce from coal um, energy is part of a larger set of industrial supply chains, value chains, which are important for a variety of sectors in the economy, but, can, but which can also be manipulated by exactly the, some of the actors and political tendencies Andrian was talking about a moment ago. What was, and what continues to be really unique concerning coal here, is that even more than in the case of natural gas or or oil, coal is central to two very important value chains for Ukraine. So it is central for the value chain that is coal to electricity. And we know that historically Ukraine has had a very significant part of its electricity produced by coal. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but it is also significant For another value chain, which actually has been tremendously important for Ukraine in the last 30 years, the metallurgical value chain, the steel value chain. And what this means is that this also allowed, or or rather this also gave incentives for players that may want to benefit or manipulate coal, even more incentives to engage in corruption to engage in bending of uh, regulations or creation of regulations for their own power. And actually what we saw is that because those supply chains that had been so important for Ukraine in the early 19, in the, in, before the early 1990s, supply chains related to the entire Soviet system in particular steel value chains, as these chains are broken, this creates an opportunity for a new set of actors to come in somehow repair those value chains in a, and supply chains in a very um, unique way, let's put it that way, and in the process make a tremendous profit through this. And it is exactly during this formative period that we see the rise of what basically became the most important oligarchic actor in Ukraine in the entire post-independence period, which is Rinat Akhmetov. And as soon as we mention his, his name, of course, we understand that the importance of coal has not simply been as a contribution to the Ukrainian energy mix, but that the ability of actors such as Akhmetov and others to control the sector also gave them a unique, um, if I may say blackmailing power on the Ukrainian polity as a whole. That blackmailing power had to do with their ability to somehow maintain employment in the sector and in the process appropriate for themselves the enormous amount of subsidies that went into the sector. This blackmailing had to do with the possibility of blackmailing or threatening the rest of Ukraine with the threat of ugly miners going into Kyiv, which already happened in, in the 1990s, or with the threat of Donbass separatism. But it also involved the utilization of a very vertically structured industrial chain having to do with some of the technologies used for the coal metallurgical chain to support the party of regions and money from this change to actually support it directly. So not only getting the boat through that vertical structure, but supporting it materially. So uh, to close, I want to say that um, coal is also very important for understanding the challenges facing Ukraine today for basically two reasons. First, although since 2014 and the the Russian intervention, Ukraine has been able to reduce its purchases, for example, of Russian natural gas, or at least contractually Russian natural gas. uh, In the case of coal, it has really been um, a very weak link in in the country's energy chain, in particular because so much of that supply chain that involved uncontro- now uncontrolled territories was key for the supply of energy, the types of coal that were used, the types of factories, the types of power plants that were used to generate electricity using coal were very clearly specified for types of coal from that region. And that has actually turned from a, from the guarantor or possible guarantor of Ukrainian energy independence that it was seen as in the early 1990s to really um, a very weak link in its economy. And finally, there is no possibility of talking about reintegrating currently occupied or uncontrolled territories in Eastern Ukraine without an economic perspective for those regions. And if Ukraine does not grasp what can be the way in which the coal sector, the metallurgical sector can be developed in a way that is sustainable, it will be very, very hard to bring those populations back into the nation. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's, thank you very much, Margarita. You concluded, I think, on a very poignant and important point. Um, let me introduce now Ilana Salogu, who is the CEO and editor of Vox Ukraine, an independent research organization cons- consisting of experienced economists and lawyers, uh, before which she was a member of Vox Ukraine's supervisory board. She's also a management team member at the Kiev School of Economics, which she joined in 2010 as a researcher and was later promoted to be director of economic policy research. Before that, Ilana worked in the banking sector, performing market and operational risk analysis. She's had experience developing and implementing market risk models, writing analytics on various topics, including the Ukrainian and global economies, social issues and market research. She graduated from the EERC uh, master's program in economics, now the Kiev School of Economics, and was a lecturer as well at the Kiev Mokila Academy. Ilana, please, the floor is yours.
3: Thank you. Um, thank you for inviting me to this discussion, and also, of course, to Mikhail for arranging this uh, very impressive book. Uh, I think it will. Uh, be helpful and successful Uh, so um, I was involved in the production of the chapter on private sector development and here I present just uh, two slides uh, with barriers and successes and uh, the more I think of it um, the more I come to conclusion that uh, a lot of uh, these barriers uh, to private sector development are rooted in the two decades of uh, roughly 1920 to 1940, uh, when everything related to private sector uh, was repressed or extinguished by the state, uh, this so-called military communism uh, model and its um, uh, developments. Uh, So although uh, if you look at the numbers, you will see that uh, private sector is quite well developed in Ukraine, and privatization has been a success. Uh, like thousands of uh, prim- primarily state-owned enterprises or entities were sold uh, in the middle of 1990s. Uh, also, a lot of uh, large enterprises were sold in uh, the 2000s. Uh, if you look deeper at that, uh, you could uh, see that uh, everything that could go wrong actually went wrong. Uh, so, this refers to voucher privatization. Uh, this refers to selling the assets to people whom we now call oligarchs, so people who got access to these assets. And uh, uh, afterwards, they Uh, still continue to receive government support uh, for their operations despite the uh, assets were private so it was like privatization of profits and nationalization of losses Uh, and uh, uh, the reason uh, for that so you can you could come as to a paradox uh, that uh, on the one thing the state Uh, is uh, rather weak uh, and is not present in the private sector that much. But on the other hand, if you are close to the state, you can get a lot of preferences for your enterprise and a lot of support uh, from the state. So uh, it's like a complicated relationship, but uh, there are people who who know how to benefit from that. Uh, and I, as I show here, the corruption uh, and underdeveloped market are, I think, consequences of the you know, more fundamental problems uh, like uh, poor understanding of economics and uh, un- poor understanding also of what property rights means and what property protection means and uh, underdevelopment of institutions. In Ukraine. Um, but there are also some success stories, which is small privatization. So if you're small and stay under radars, the uh, then you could be successful. Uh, there are quite a few success stories of uh, companies that developed from scratch in Ukraine. Uh, banking sector in the last years can be also considered a success story after the regulator uh, introduced proper standards and enforced uh, those standards on their banks. Uh, Agriculture, uh, despite of course it received uh, a lot of explicit and implicit subsidies in the form of uh, low taxes, absence of land market and so on, uh, still Bankers, for example, consider agricultural enterprises one of the best uh, borrowers and uh, this sector is developing quite successfully, including introduction of proper management techniques. Uh, The IT sector, uh, perhaps currently the large part of it looks like a sweatshop, so it's just working for some western companies but there are also success stories and the thinkers uh, this sector works with students with the uh, young people and uh, there is this uh, startup culture developed in ukraine uh, we will see more and more success stories uh, and uh, also after 2014 um, quite a few professionals from the private sector and the government and uh, they try to introduce uh, those practices and proper processes uh, they, uh, You can of course know uh, about the pro system, you can also remember some <clears throat> other developments. So uh, I think this uh, And although right now we can, uh, it seems that uh, there is some rollback of the reforms, but still I think this experience uh, that people can enter the government and do something uh, for their country, it will stay with us and it will be used uh, sometime in the future. So, uh, here I'll stop my presentation and I will, uh, I'm ready for
0: the questions. Great. Thank you so much, Ilana. We, we have a number of excellent questions uh, coming in already by email, but just as a reminder, anyone else uh, who wants to ask, email Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, tweet to at Kenan Institute, or post on our Facebook page, and please include your name and affiliation. Um, I do want to start us out, though, by offering uh, my colleague Misha Minakova, a comment if you'd like, or or a question, uh, and then you can kick it back to me, and and we'll start to go through some of the audience questions. Please. Uh,
4: thank you, Matt. Yes, I actually have uh, kind of several observations, and then two questions to our speakers. First of all, the the, the book that we were working, uh, it it blended into something very important. Again, Margarita mentioned that this cooperation of scholars from two different academic cultures have been creating something very valuable also for themselves in terms of understanding how how different can be the same science uh, being or the, the same research being done on the soil of united states or uh, a look at the uh, result at every chapter uh, in our book, um, I, I think it's, it's the victory of universalist nature of, of the science. So I'm very glad that we came up to the moment when our uh, book is present and it has the, the form that it has now. And now, uh, closer to today's topic, uh, when I was listening to Andriana and Margarita and to Ilona's presentations, I was keeping in mind this. I was still a student when I was reading the uh, decision of the Cabinet of Ministers of 1994, which had a list of privatization of the companies and plants and other assets uh, for privatization. Recently, uh, in a publication of 2018, there was an assessment saying that this plan approximately 22, 23%. So basically within 25 years, only a quarter of the list was privatized. And here is is the question to Ilona, what was happening with the, uh, what is happening with privatization today? Recently, we had a decision of cabinet of ministers again to relaunch the privatization in 2021. Uh, And my question is, why do we still privatizing? What happened to this old privatization list? Well, it's a provocative question, but I I think uh, it's a good pass for Ilona to, to respond. And then I have a question to Margarita and Andrea. So part of the transition and the ideology behind it it was that in the post communist post totalitarian states the public sector would take would actually take place so this great di- redist- great distribution di- bifurcation would return into Ukraine Russia Belarus and so on and uh, my question is how, how this division on public and private spheres uh, have actually influenced the development of energy sector. Are today's energy sector, U- Ukrainian energy sector companies, like are, are they private really? Are they public really? What kind of nature do they have? Thank you, I'll, I'll stop for this.
0: Thanks, Misha. That was great. I think we, I don't know if everybody had a little difficulty hearing some parts of your question, but I I think the questions were clear enough. So, Ilona, do you want to go first on on the privatization list?
3: Uh, Yeah. Well, first of all, the privatization list is now much shorter than it was. For example, in 1996, if I remember correctly, alone, uh, about 50,000 enterprises were privatized. And today we have about 300, 3,500 state-owned companies, of which I think about 200 will remain state-owned. Um, why we didn't privatize these leftovers for a long time? Uh, there are different reasons for large companies. Uh, these are clashes of the Uh, vested interests uh, of those who wanted to privatize other parties who wanted to have this enterprise and those who didn't want uh, to privatize it but wanted to to have it under their control. Uh, For example, there are some companies uh, with majority uh, state share uh, but uh, which are controlled actually by private businesses. Uh, Another uh, thing is uh, it, uh, and it relates especially to small privatization and to local governments. Uh, this is um, fear to do anything because um, on the side of officials. Uh, because if you do something and, you know, sell the assets which you don't need, then the prosecution could come to you and say, why did you sell it for like 2,000 and not 3,000 or something like that. And uh, until uh, there was launch of Prozora system where everyone could see that the, uh, you see the transparent auction and who bid it, who, who got uh, this asset, they were actually afraid to, to act. And uh, the third reason um, is that we had previously some rules that were Uh, slowing down the privatization uh, of uh, this especially refers to large assets and uh, these are rules like for example selling some shares on the open market or uh, too complicated procedures for uh, primary evaluation of this asset and so on so that the government was trying hard not to sell it cheaply but in the end uh, it didn't sell it at all so this would be my answer to
0: that thanks Ilana and um, Margarita Andrian uh, who wants to go first on talking about the public versus uh, private spheres in the energy sector go go ahead Margarita you're muted
2: thank you let me take a a a bit of a stab at this Um, one of the really interesting uh, things about studying Ukraine is that it really challenges that idea that this is going to be a a transition to private economy because what we see is that Ukrainian oligarchs very soon understood that it was more beneficial for them to have an informal control of formally owned companies than to officially own them. um, we see that very clearly in the coal sector, um, all the battles for the control of coal mines and um, iron ore mines and, and other things. Um, it's interesting because this, this develops a little bit differently in, in different subsectors of the of the energy uh, field. In the case of coal, that was very strong, let's say, until around 2004, 2005. At that time, because there was um, there were foreign competitors coming in after the reprivatization of uh, Rich, uh, because there was more need for consolidation, you saw more formalization of ownership in the coal sector and in the metallurgical sector around that period. But it continued. Um, until much later, for example, in the natural gas sector. Let's just only remember that incredible scene in 2015, I believe, when Ihor Kolomoisky, who was f- informally controlling state-owned UKRA Transnafta, tried to kind of raid and take control again of the, um, of the company. So the oligarchs understood that it was better to have informal control than formal control. Why? Because doing so allowed them basically to continue to receive state subsidies and transform those state subsidies into their own private capital. Some of this has changed, but some of this has remained. And in another aspect of the question, of the very interesting question uh, raised by Michalo, there is still a bit of an... Lack of clarity in Ukraine about the difference between state property and public property, which is another aspect of this issue. And this became very, very clear um, a year and a few months ago as Ukraine finally had to comply with European Union regulations about the unbundling of NAFTOHAS Ukraini, all these EU uh, regulations that Ukraine had signed into as as a member of the energy community, regulations requiring the separation between production, transmission, or transit, and distribution. And until the last minute, NAFTA wanted to keep this united or to keep control, uh, direct control, and ownership of the transmission sector. So unfortunately, um, I do not think that there has been sufficient clarity about these different types of ownership in Ukraine and the number of loopholes. And I think this is something Ilona indirectly has alluded to in her presentation and she may want to talk about more. The number of loopholes concerning corporate governance and property rights have allowed um, a tremendous amount of um, corruption in in those sectors. Andrew. Thank you, thanks.
1: That's a really good question. Uh, no, know, uh, in Ukraine, uh, government always tries to sell unprofitable company, but nobody want to buy it. <laughs> and uh, in the case of profitable companies, uh, state prefer using these companies to uh, mm, to take money for subsidizing like final consumers. Uh, that is also a kind of misusing. Uh, and there are also companies, which state-owned companies, which are unprofitable but can be profitable. And these are profitable uh, as a result of misusing by some uh, persons, uh, including oligarchs. Uh, Margarita already mentioned Ihor Kolomoysky. So uh, even now he he was misusing uh, the biggest uh, company, uh, thermal power uh, producing company, and uh, uh, authorities couldn't change management, uh, efficiently change management in the company. <clears throat> they, they had to use riot police twice to do this. Uh, but, but still, uh, there are a lot of uh, unprofitable companies uh, which uh, will never be sold. And uh, this problem sh- should be solved. That is the case of state-owned coal mines. Uh, these state-owned coal mines uh, generate, uh, produce less than 10% of all coal in the country right now and contribute to just, if I'm not wrong, 0.2% of GDP in the country. But uh, from year to year, they're generating more and more uh, losses. So uh, this lack of state policy, what to do with this uh, property, uh, lack of uh, political will, what to do with this property, uh, lack of the policy of uh, creating uh, new clusters uh, so that these people um, working in that mines uh, could uh, get new jobs. Uh, that is, that brings us to, to many, many problems. However, still I believe that uh, despite the fact that privatization of energy assets was intransparent, I believe that private owner is much more efficient than state does. So uh, I think if there was no privatization, we would saw uh, energy sector today in much worse a condition uh, if there was
0: uh, in other cases. Thanks, guys, very much. We have some wonderful questions coming in. Um, it, it looks like a lot of our questioners have uh, lived and worked in Ukraine and are very interested in, in some of the things that are you know, striking and surprising to Westerners who who show up and, and try to help. Um, I actually wanna take first something that really struck me when I lived in Ukraine. Uh, this is from Joyce Alfredink, uh, who says, when I lived in Western Ukraine in 2016, every family I met had members working out of the country due to lack of local jobs. Has that improved? <laughs> Boy, uh, and amid a pandemic on top of it, um, who would like to take that one?
3: Uh, I can uh, answer that question, Uh, actually there are no uh, precise estimates of how many Ukrainians work abroad, Uh, but uh, I don't think that this is something negative, Uh, of course it has uh, some negative consequences for the families, uh, but uh, as for the general it uh, reduces the pressure on labor market, for example, that people work abroad. Uh, second, they uh, earn their some some money and uh, often they come, especially to Western Ukraine and start their own business in the tourist um, area. For example, they build private hotels or whatever. So uh, this is not necessarily a bad thing. I think situation did not change much uh, since the lockdown. So people who uh, used to work abroad, I think they they still do that.
0: Um, if, if I may, I, I want to offer a couple of follow-ups on that question, and 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 Misha, I welcome you to comment on this too, since it's it is certainly a, a sociological issue as well. I mean, my experience in in Moldova was, of course, that the extreme version of labor migrancy can can result in a massive hollowing out of a society, which is very negative. Um, I I wonder, you know, if there are parts of, obviously Ukraine as a whole has not seen that, but if there are parts of Ukraine where that's been a problem. And then I guess the other question is during COVID, um, you know, I mean, what's happened with, I know it's a large number, for example, of Ukrainians who used to be able to drive back and forth to Poland, or, or uh, Hungary or, you know, some of the neighboring countries, I mean, has this stopped because of COVID for a year? And anyway, Misha,
4: okay. else? Well, uh, before the COVID, th- there was uh, a process that our sociologists and demographs were calling, like that when the migrants had a tendency to actually stay that they uh, worked for a longer time, like if, a a working migrant stayed in a country for over five years he or she would probably try to move his or her family to the country of work so they would have tendency to to leave and uh, 18 the the sociological polls were saying uh that uh, it was a pro migrants
0: Misha, unfortunately, we're, we're losing you about half the time now.
4: Sorry for this. I, my Maybe friend. if you
0: turn off your virtual background, it will be a little uh, more more efficient. Let me offer in the meantime, Margarita, Andrian, do, do you want to comment on the labor migratory issues at all? Andrian, go ahead.
1: Yeah, just a short comment. I think the situation hasn't changed drastically by 2021 when uh, a pandemic, uh, by 2020 when pandemic uh, uh, period because uh, every year uh, the amount of money these people transferred from other states to Ukraine was increasing. So the, I believe that there is no serious uh, decrease of number of people who are working abroad. However, still, uh, there are some questions about the methodol- methodology, uh, but no serious reason to believe that situation has changed seriously. Uh,
0: Misha, are you back?
4: Yes. Well, let's hope that uh, the connection is better. So basically, yes, uh, th- 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 there was an impact of COVID on those uh, working migrants in in Europe. In... Sorry.
0: No, it's 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 okay. Maybe uh, just.
4: So the 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 labor labor migrants during current quarantines and uh, lockdowns they stopped going back to ukraine so it creates new incentives for them to localize and to however uh, the the recent report the recent report by eu
0: Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I'm sorry, Misha. We, we keep losing you. Um, Margarita, did you want to comment on this? Because I, I can also go to any other questions. Lots, you're muted, Margarita.
2: I let it. I let it go for now. We okay.
0: Okay. Great. So, so next, I'll take a, a question here from uh, Günther Rosenitz, uh, who directs the Austrian Peace Academy. He asks uh, a, kind of a number of questions all combined together, but I'm just going to read it. Um, what are uh, Ukraine's energy goals regarding pollution and nuclear power? Um, there are some Ukrainian water plants in the far west, which are affecting Moldova. Can you explain this issue? And what could be areas of cooperation between Ukraine and the EU on, uh, I guess, green energy? Um, and and likewise, how does that look between uh, Ukraine and the U.S.? So kind of a lot of questions packaged in there. Um Margarita, Andrian, I think uh, one of you ought to tackle that first, if you're willing. Uh, go Maybe I'll, I'll start. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh,
1: so uh, re- regarding nuclear power, so nuclear is crucially important. Ukraine is uh, responsible for more than 50% of electricity produced. So uh, energy strategy uh, says that Ukraine will pay an uh, extremely important role to nuclear power and Except of this, there are no specific benchmarks, uh, but now, uh, so last year, uh, National Nuclear Power Company, another uh, had losses, about $5 billion, uh, not dollars, okay. But th- that was the first year when it was um, unprofitable, and there was still a question, uh, what money will be used to build new uh, nuclear power units? However, uh, as I see, for next twenty years, uh, existing power units uh, still can be used safely. Uh, so, state says that we will use uh, nuclear power uh, in future. Uh, regarding uh, hydropower plants in Moldova, that's true because uh, there are a number of uh, energy facilities on Dniester River. And Dniester is a crucially important uh, source of water for uh, Moldova. About 90% of water comes from uh, this river. And in the case if uh, some new facilities are constructed on Dniester, uh, this means lowering level of level of water in Moldova and the scarcity of the problem of scarcity of water. <clears throat> so there are plans, there are plans uh, to construct new uh, hydropower plants on uh, Dniester but uh, still uh, we are too far from implementing these plans. Uh, these facilities won't be started, built it, uh, next year. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I think we will, we will see discussions, negotiations, maybe with Moldova, with the European Union, uh, but uh, I can see that there's a lot of clarity about future of this uh, nuclear power plants uh, mm-hmm. regarding,
0: yeah, I, I just, uh, go, go ahead, Andrean. if you wanted to touch on the other questions, we'll give Margarita a chance on that as well.
1: Uh-huh. Regarding pollution, so now, before uh, New Climate Conference, we are still discussing about the uh, Ukrainian uh, input uh, in uh, carbon uh, pollution decreasing. And uh, there are serious uh, negotiation with the European Union about future um, Application to Ukraine of cover uh, border taxing mechanism. And uh, probably we will have a serious cooperation with the European Union on hydrogen, green hydrogen production wage, because European hydrogen strategy pays a specific role to Ukraine as a future uh, hydrogen exporter to European Union.
0: Uh, Margarita, did you want to touch further on the, especially the EU, Ukraine, and US Ukraine?
2: Um. I think Andrian covered most of the topics, but I do want to emphasize something very important in what he said, that is the transnational links that take place here uh, take place at levels that sometimes we kind of neglect to see. And the example of the the planned hydropower stations in the Niester are a very, very good example of that. Um, When we talk about energy or green energy cooperation with the EU, for example, let's not forget what is actually happening, uh, which is that in many situations, the EU is outsourcing its high CO2 emission energy consumption uh, through importation from Ukraine. We have in Ukraine, or there is in Ukraine, two areas, two so-called energy islands in western Ukraine that are exporting electricity to the EU, coal-based electricity. So even before we talk about green cooperation, we need to look at the ways in which um, high, highly polluting production is being kind of outsourced through Ukraine in these ways. And I think that's also an element of the picture that needs to be considered.
0: Let me uh, go to another question now from uh, Elena Lennon, who's an adjunct professor at the University of New Haven, also a former Kenan Institute fellow. Um, she asks you, Margarita, directly, Um, the following. As you know, not all coal is the same. Most of Ukraine's anthracite coal, uh, which is considered cleaner, is produced in uncontrolled areas of Donbass. And since Kiev's blockade in 2017, millions of tons have been shipped to Russia, where it is relabeled as Russian and sold to Asia and Europe. That's just one example of lost profit for Ukraine on resources smuggled out of the so-called republics. Uh, What's your opinion on this economic blockade? what can Ukraine and the international community do to prevent a complete collapse of Donbass's economy uh, and the toll it will take on local populations? Obviously, that that becomes quite a large question, but uh, go ahead if you'd like to comment.
2: Well, first of all, I I welcome this question, and um, I think it shows a very nuanced understanding of the sets of issues uh, going on there. Um, So the issue of the blockade uh, takes us back to the issue of how Ukrainian Coal-related oligarchs were continuing very close connections with that, those um, uncontrolled or Russian-occupied territories until 2017, even when there was officially a separation and a, and a um, um, policy of non-cooperation in that in that sector. Of course, this raises also the issue of how to prevent the economic collapse of. Donbass. And this is a very big question because it raises the issue of what is the responsibility of the occupying, the fact of occupying power there, and what is the responsibility of Kiev there. And it's an issue that touches not only upon energy issues, but also uh, issues of pensions, issues of social services, issues of whether pensioners from those areas should be allowed to receive their Pensions from Ukraine. Whether um, Ukraine should actually force Russia to take responsibility for those areas, and uh, I don't think we can fully discuss that in, in, in five five minutes or, or ten minutes. But what is clear to me here is that, as dysfunctional as the as dysfunctional in efficiency terms and in long term terms as the coal metallurgical sector was in that area before two thousand fourteen. What we have now is not only the dissolution of the links with the rest of Ukraine, but a horrific situation there for the workers of the sector, um, total lack of workers' rights in the mines, in the uh, uncontrolled territories, um, and a lot of mines that are that had been um, flooded with water, so, these are very, very serious issues. What, what can Ukraine do or what should Ukraine do to stop this is also a political question, which I think is, um, is a matter of, of what policies are pursued, whether to try to keep the or support maintaining those territories afloat or to force Russia to live up to what it has done in the region. Um, the only thing I want to add is that Ukrainian oligarchs know this very well. And they are making sure that they maintain a presence even to, after 2017 in the area through their um, social service foundations and so on. And it's a it's a very touchy political question. And uh, I would love to hear what uh, Mihail Mikhail has to say about this, for example. Thank you.
0: Well, Misha, if you want to try again, uh, you've been called out.
4: I'm afraid my connection is getting worse. It's something going on outside in okay. the weather. Sorry for this. Oh,
0: OK, no problem. We, we actually have a number of other questions. So with your permission, um, uh, Andrian and Ilana, maybe uh, you can tackle this one. David Darby is a former uh, US Treasury Department and USAID uh, advisor working with uh, the Ukrainian government. Um, and he worked on uh, improving the budget system uh, for the country. Um, He asks, uh, do any of the panelists have impressions about how Ukraine's budget, finances, and overall fiscal policy are working today? Ilana, would would you take a stab at that, I feel like? Uh, Yes. Uh, So I would say
3: that the... Uh, Fiscal system is working okay. Uh, So in the, I think, 2019, and uh, before that, a few changes, there were a few changes to legislation um, that, um, for example, with introduction of some fiscal rules, or um, there were some legislative grounds for introduction of uh, three-year budgeting and so on, so like basically, uh, uh, there is uh, uh, the legislation for that, but uh, we need to see, of course, the implementation of this uh, new development in the budgeting. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's as bad it, as it was like, before 2014, but it's uh, obviously not perfect. Uh, because uh, many government institutions uh, do not yet understand uh, what a uh, uh, program budgeting is, uh, I mean proper program budgeting, that you need to achieve some policy goal with your budget and so on. They are used to this uh, line budgeting and try to keep it as long as possible. Uh, but uh, there is some slow progress, for example, uh, a review of expenditures has started and has uh, been completed in a few uh, ministries or government agencies. And so we hope that this time, this, uh, this will improve. And of course, the cooperation with the IMF is important in this respect. So, this is like an external incentive to keep the budget deficit within, within reasonable limits.
0: You know, you mentioned, you mentioned the IMF, I wanna, uh, and, and Andrean, I'll come to you as well if that's all right. Um, my question is that uh, repayment of international debt is actually a huge percentage of the Ukrainian state budget. I know it varies from year to year. But uh, you know, if that's if that's correct, is it is this kind of like a one step forward, two steps back kind of problem where where you know all of the things that Ukraine tries to do with its budget gets crowded out by this you know kind of debt burden?
1: Well, actually, that's true. Uh, the debt burden is increasing. However, so uh, this year it will be not a problem to pay for debts uh, because uh, these amounts are not so extraordinary. And in case uh, of IMF, uh, it's more about um, trust because uh, if there is no agreement on IMF uh, tranche, uh, then like, other parties um, may doubt about Ukrainian reliability. And this impact on profitability of the, the bonds that uh, Ukraine issue to finance uh, either payments or some other programs.
3: Well, I would say the situation with that debt is not uh, as bad as it was in 2016, when it was about 80 percent of GDP. Now it's about 60 percent, and uh, a year and in 2019 it declined to 50 50 percent. Uh, but the main thing is yet yeah, to be able to refinance this debt, and uh, of course the price which you pay for it. And uh, everyone knows that IMF money is cheap and money on the market, taking into account the country risk is more expensive.
0: Okay, uh, let me go uh, to one more audience question uh, from again from Gunter uh the director of the Austrian Peace Academy. Um, who asks Uh, We suggest he he has doubts uh, about Ukraine's uh, ability to organize the economy, uh, given the challenges of uh, corruption, rule of law, the the security situation, uh, etc., and asks in particular um, about the, uh, the, the, the dependency on external supporters, in particular the United States and China. I remember... Uh, this is this is me talking. I remember in my uh, time uh, living in Ukraine and, and doing research. This, um, this was in the li- very late Yanukovych period that you would always have this kind of specter of well, you know, if it doesn't work out in the Russian vector or the Western vector, we always can go to the Chinese. Uh, and so I am very interested in that in that question. Um, Ukraine doesn't seem to have a major dependency on China. Uh, is there development in that direction and kind of how does it balance?
3: I would say that uh, Ukraine tries to be friends with everyone as much as it is possible, and uh, as for cooperation with China, um, it lacks uh, some important component in that uh, that China doesn't ask for structural reforms, Uh, so uh, yeah of course we have some projects financed by China in Ukraine, but I think that cooperation with international organization like the IMF or the Western governments is more important in, in the, for the institutional development of Ukraine.
1: <laughs> and just to add about China, uh, the most recent developments in uh, uh, the, the most recent developments uh, regarding uh, big company uh, Motor Siege, which are producing vehicles for helicopters and missiles, and uh, so Chinese investor uh, was buying this company, however, uh, there were serious discussions in Ukraine, and there was some tensions with the uh, U.S., because U.S. persuaded uh, Ukraine not to sell Motor Siege. so at final extent, there was a decision on nationalization, and uh, there, was, uh, there was sanctions imposed uh, regarding uh, US investor. So uh, that's very interesting how uh, Ukraine-Chinese um, relations will develop in the nearest future. And the question, how will this uh, impact on uh, Ukraine-China international trade? Because uh, export to China was uh, increasing in recent years. So uh, th- that's going to be very interesting. Development
0: uh, in uh, Ukraine-China relationship. If I can, uh, I'd like to ask, uh, maybe as a kind of concluding topic, uh, a question about my my own work. Um, again, this you know this goes back to before the Maidan, but my perception was the situation really didn't change dramatically, and this is around the problem of uh, raiders raiding in Ukraine. Um, where essentially what it has most of all to do with is the battling among different sources of power and the fact that, you know, ironically in Russia, you used to have huge problems with rating, and then Putin established a power vertical. And basically the problems were reduced because it was clear who you went to to validate your control uh, over particular assets. In Ukraine, the fact of the pluralism of power actually created more opportunities for raiding, and this was true under Yanukovych, as I understand it remains true today. Um, I'm very interested, I haven't paid close attention to the latest developments. Uh, Are you still seeing prominent cases of raiding uh, or what is being called raiding? Uh, Is it the same actors as always? Are there new people who come in? For example, we have now the Zelensky family, if you will. Are you seeing kind of raiding activity happening under this uh, banner or umbrella? I'd be very curious how you assess this landscape.
2: I want to say just a couple of words uh, before I I leave it to the people who actually know what is happening in that area. Um, But I would say that what is at the core here is, are there going to be transparent regulations about corporate governance? Because what I have seen through uh, analyzing the rating in the past is that you have actors who are, Raiding against each other, and tomorrow they are the same actors coalescing with each other uh, in uh, cooperating with each other to take over a state-owned asset for pennies. So um, even more than the act of the raiding itself, I want to see how legislation is changing to make corporate governance more transparent so that these kinds of things are not allowed to take away people's ownership or the, what people pay for with their taxes but I think Andrea and Ilona know much more about what is happening with rating now and it's a really fantastic question
0: yeah but a good good point uh, Margarita about the the transparency issues I, I will simply note that you know when I was working on this uh, it was it was at the point when I think paper records were transitioning to electronic records and so another question you could add is you you probably remember the notarius played a critical role because you had paper records and stampa and everything. If you could go and get a corrupt notarius to help you, then anything was possible. Now, as you have more transparency and more electronic records, I wonder if we intersect with the world of cybercrime uh, also in this problem. Anyway, lots of questions. I'm curious of your takes, Andrea and Ilona and Misha, if you want to try Well,
1: uh, the problem that you described was all these uh, uh was changing documents, this still exists. So uh, these uh, crimes uh, still are popular, especially it's about stealing property and spirits and, and, uh, and stealing uh, lands, uh, but, and so, I haven't met any specific, uh, you know, index that me- measures uh, these things, but uh, I believe that nowadays, uh, such this raiding problem is much lower than it was like seven years ago, uh, when it was under umbrella of uh, big, uh, big people, big politicians like Yanukovych was, and they were trying to uh, raider businesses, other people, in the interest of uh, the Delukovish son. So these problems still exist, uh, but I believe that uh, in smaller scale than in wars. And uh, I just recommend you to do read uh, the article I published uh, half a year ago, I believe, why Ukrainian prosecution system remains toothless. And uh, this, uh, gives a lot of answers to why these problems still exist.
0: Milana, please. Uh,
3: I'm not very familiar with this problem, uh, but what I see from the, the news, there is not much, there is not much uh, discussion of ridership. So probably people are finding some easier ways uh, to earn money if they want uh, them to grabs some others uh, property and uh, of course electronic registers uh, help although there was uh, recently a discussion that um, state land some of the state land disappeared somehow from the state ownership uh, so and um, as for the corporate uh, governance rights uh, there were some Uh, Changes in regulation in 2015 and 2016 that uh, actually even moved Ukraine a little bit up in this doing business rating. Um, But uh, I don't know how they are applied in practice. So you need to talk to the uh, entrepreneurs to know that. But uh, uh, the improvements in corporate governance were actually there in the legislation.
0: And and I'd add, you know, it it was true uh, at that time, six, seven years ago, and I suspect it's true today that, you know, rating is not always created equal. Sometimes you have uh, a a business dispute. I mean, just a sort of normal argument, which, you know, each side accuses the other side of rating because they know it's kind of a black mark uh, and it makes good PR. Misha, did you want to try to offer a final comment?
4: Yes, uh, if you can hear me. The, the storm outside, it, it probably ruins the connection. Sorry for this. Well, uh, Ilona and Andriana are right. There was no much reports in mass media about the Raidership attacks recently. And the famous Raiders, they, are, they look like they are retired from that type of business into more solid type of business, so you can see this family of famous raiders in uh, Dnipropetrovsk, for example, they are now doing other type of business. And uh, about a year ago, I interviewed one of the lawyers who was uh, involved in many litigations connected to corporate raidership. And he was uh, saying that this type of business is disappearing for some unexpected reason, that there was due to the judiciary reform courts are are less, uh, there are less uh, judges in the courts right now. There's a big lack of judges in in, in the courts of justice. And for this reason, you cannot make many fast decisions in the court. And readership really needs this fast decision. Plus, in addition, we we have this uh, registry, electronic registry, and every Uh, every decision is there timely marked. So uh, basically, the potential victims can trace very fast the attack. So in a way, this type of business is probably disappearing. At the same time, the the new risk emerges that um, in recent several months, we see a lot of sanctions against oligarchs. And uh, the, the, it creates certain opportunities for not for non judiciary path of radioship so there's, for example, a case right now, with the pipeline that is being taken away from allegedly from Medvedchuk uh, or his family members and. Uh, here we are entering into the situation that creates a possibility for someone else. Who has an opportunity to take it over? But again, uh, there's no report so far on this kind of uh, events. But yes, there's a new opportunity appearing for raidership.
0: Well, these these are all great points, um, and and the issues remain fascinating. Uh, I love I loved your reference, Misha, to the uh, the Nipro Raider clans because they were in fact quite famous. Um, in fact, there was a certain certain oligarch whose name I won't mention, except to say that his first name was Ihor and his, uh, his moniker was Ihor 1%. Um, and I don't know if that still applies, but uh, I remember saying at the time to many of my Ukrainian interview subjects that, uh, well, you know, we had these people in the United States also and now they're legitimate. And at the time I worked for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. So there was a great irony there uh, as Andrew Carnegie certainly did some interesting things in acquiring his fortune. Uh, Look, I want to thank everybody very much. It's been a great discussion. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, Let me encourage uh, anyone uh, listening, pick up a copy of the book. It will be available uh, uh, on the website. I think you can pre-order it now and it'll be available in May. We'll do uh, probably more events highlighting the different um, chapter authors. Uh, I want to thank Margarita, Ilona, Andrian uh, for your contributions to the volume, for your contributions today. Misha, thank you so much for being the driving force behind the project. I'm glad your internet is working again. Where there is internet, there is life. So thank you again to all of my colleagues and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you. Goodbye.